Chapter 40 Accidents Gwen woke screaming into a strip of his own shirt. He tore it off and remembered where he was, how sore his body was, what had happened. Weeks had passed, but he was alive. He wasn't sure it mattered, but he was alive. The blue Annis hadn't been able to cross their forest boundary. He'd skidded out of the forest abruptly, tumbling down a ravine, falling insensate at the bottom, lungs burning as he gasped for air, body sore, rib throbbing at him. There he'd crawled into the lee of a stone where it was far too cold for comfort, and sleep had overtaken him. He'd had no choice. He needed sleep. He woke screaming from nightmares two days later, partially frostbitten, and two unseely common face standing over him. They watched him like they weren't quite sure what to do, but he could tell from the weapons they held, an axe, a pitchfork, they meant him harm. He'd growled and lunged at them, stumbling on numbed feet and still groggy with dream memories of killing people who'd never deserved death. But that had been enough. they turned and fled. Later, rubbing the feeling back into his feet and hands, he'd realized that his reputation still counted for something. Faye knew of him as a berserker on the battlefield. It seemed to have some traction, at least in some circles. But it wasn't enough to keep him safe. The unseely Faye had alerted others, and Gwen spent much of the next few days running, using stealth to hide his tracks, until finally, terrified and aware that his body was demanding sleep again, he'd thrown himself into teleportation and managed to land in a poor-quality woodland several kilometers away. He'd crept into a thicket, slumped down, slept again. And so it went. He needed food. He needed water. The latter was easy to find, but food was difficult. He needed so much, and his physical condition meant he couldn't pass in the human world as anything more than a vagrant. Not only that, but teleporting across the veil into the human world was simply too difficult to repeat after that first time. It taxed too much energy. The fey land with the best access to fruit, berries, animals, was the land guarded fiercely by other species of fey that would have attacked him even if there hadn't been a price on his head, even if he wasn't the demoted and deposed once king of the Seely fey. His skin was covered in scratches, grazes, and lacerations. His hair was a tangled mess, and he had no way of cutting it. He tried untangling the snarls and knots in it, but had only succeeded in losing patience with himself and ripping out a section of his own hair. He left it alone after that. It wasn't bothering him too much. He'd lived like this once before, wild and in the woods. Only then, he'd had a safe, warded cabin to go to whenever he wanted a place to rest. Still, sleeping in thickets and on the cold ground wasn't unfamiliar. He knew how to strip bark from certain plants to chew at the softer, pulpier, sweet woods underneath for sugars and cellulose. He knew what was edible and what was not. He had no compunctions eating grubs and caterpillars, snatching crickets when he found them. It was piecemeal, he was dropping weight fast, but it was better than not knowing his environment at all. He was becoming aware of how much of his life was centering purely on survival. He ate enough to fuel him to run from place to place. He hid and slept so he would recharge enough to eat again. In those early days, he didn't have enough time to think much about the Seely Court, Creel, or the Unseely Court in August. There were too many close calls, too much running. After the second time sleeping, waking up screaming, he'd ripped a strip off his shirt and worn it as a pale linen band around his wrist. He had it for one reason only. He gagged himself before sleeping. 
It was uncomfortable. It made him feel trapped, made it harder to sleep, but... He was too loud, too fretful when he slept, and he couldn't seem to switch his body over into dozes like he used to. His body was far louder than his mind now that he was under Fay, far more demanding. He needed something to mask his screaming, or at least quieten it. Gwen pushed himself upright, untying the circle of material, and then retying it, wet with saliva as it was, around his wrist. He stared down at his right hand where he'd tied it, looked at the cuts, the scratches, closed his eyes. He needed to find a place to settle. He couldn't keep running from territory to territory like this. But as Underfay, he had no right to land. He had to fight for it or take very low-grade land to himself, which meant poor pickings for food and clean water. Not only that, but any class higher than Underfay, which was all of them, could challenge him for land and had the right to kill him if he refused. He could also be challenged by fellow Underfay. Gwyn knew that he was physically strong and mentally competent, but he was at a significant disadvantage. He still wasn't using his light. All other Fae, that he could tell, had their innate abilities and wouldn't hesitate to use them. His light stayed locked inside of him. He felt it, close to the surface, but he couldn't seem to go beneath and use it since the demotion, and he didn't want to anyway. But the one time he reached for it, he'd only succeeded in blistering his own forearm. What use is being classless if I can't use it? He pushed himself upright and looked around. He was starting to forget where he was, despite having an accurate internal compass. He'd teleported and run so far, so often, that landscapes were blurring into each other. And here, in fir forest of poor quality, he had to turn several times to get his bearings. After that, the sharp ache of his stomach, the burn of acid in his esophagus, drove him to search for food. It wasn't the right season for birds' eggs in the trees, and he was becoming aware that making the climbs would make the food burn away too quickly anyway. He would normally attempt to make some traps. Even without a knife, he could make a trap. But he was leaving places too quickly to come back and check. He couldn't draw his bow and arrow properly, though he'd managed several rabbits. The tension he needed to pull in the string made his injured rib throb so heavily he would start to shake. He knew it was healing, but every time he drew on the string, he was making it harder for the bone to heal than ossify around the place it had simply been cut away. He stuck to insects, the fat, bitter bodies of moths that crunched underneath teeth and never tasted palatable, the grubs that were better but required time to find. Not only that, but pulling bark back from the trees sometimes cracked too loudly to keep Gwen hidden. Still, he managed. He refused to use his animal-calling ability to him to acquire food. A deep well of knowledge inside of him, older than he was, told him that it would be wrong. But he was tempted. More days passed, and Gwen was in a new forest now. A cursed forest that had been recently taken by disease, the branches rotting from the trees and falling with intermittent thuds onto the forest floor. The whole landscape smelled of a cloying fungus that itched at his nostrils and his throat. But here there were still animals remaining, and very few fae. They'd never liked unlucky or cursed regions. He'd come across two unseelie fungus fae, fafters, but they'd given him a wide berth and not challenged him. He realized that if they were the primary species here, he might indeed be able to find a small tract of land he could make his own. 
So it was by a hillock of moss-covered rocks in the shadow of a dark gray, unstable cliff that had once been some kind of fey quarry cut into a hill, that he began dragging branches and grasses to make something of a home for himself. He even risked a fire, the first for—he couldn't quite remember how long. Warming his hands in front of it felt so good that his eyes started to burn. That evening, in the cold, unwilling to risk being found by the light of the fire— he realized how much he missed those soldiers who could manage enough of magic that they could make smokeless fires with their many-colored flames. Still, he was warmer than normal, covered in sheaths of dry, dead grass. They all smelled more of mold and fungus than he would prefer, but it was something approaching comfortable. He'd stayed up and waited for a comet that he could sense coming hours before it came. He'd always been able to do that. Meteors, comets, other flying debris— it all sang in his blood before he saw them streak across the skies. He stared up at the stars, silently naming all the constellations to himself, then pointed where the comet would fly across the sky before it flew. And there, appearing from the point of his index finger like he'd willed it, the meteor streaked across the sky. He followed it with his eyes, sighed when it disappeared. Anything else flying across the sky was too far away for his blood to pick up. He turned and unwrapped the linen from his wrist before gagging himself. It dried his lips, dried his mouth, but he had to. The nightmares wouldn't stop. But it was something, he thought, that waking up was still preferable to the things he saw in his head when he slept. There was a river with fresh, clean running water about two kilometers from his home, and he made the walk frequently. Gwen had no rod or line for fishing, and he contemplated stealing one. Before he resorted to that, he decided to lay down by the riverbank and see if he could let his hand go lax enough in the frigid water and simply use one of the earliest fishing techniques he'd been taught. Even as the sensation bleached from his fingers, he felt one fish, then another fish, brush against him. They checked to see if he was edible, then began to accept his presence in the water. He swallowed hungrily at the prospect of raw or cooked fish. Raw first, he thought cooked later. A sharp zing, then a thud in his shoulder that forced a roar from his throat. He pushed himself upright, slipping on his numb, wet hand, exhaling pain when he realized that it was an arrow through his shoulder. The arrowhead pinned him to the floor of the bank. His right shoulder was a mess of feedback, by turns without feeling, then screeching pain at him. Turning, he saw two men in Creel's colors. Both had new arrows drawn on him. He stared, breathless. How did they find him? Was he being tracked with magic? How? Did his mother lay a spell on him while he was unconscious in the cell? You could only track someone who teleported with the assistance of a mage, and that mage had to lay their magic directly on the person. They couldn't just... Gwyn stood, but felt faint. A vicious light pulsed in the back of his mind. Dead or alive, Gwen called to them. His voice was ruined with pain. Either one called back. He had a thin, stern look about him. His hair pulled back in a tail. Gwen didn't recognize him, but he knew the other. A local colleague of Leeds, who had served alongside him in the military, then retired to join his personal, local retinue. Now one of Creel's soldiers. Preferably alive, the other one called. Gwen thought his name might be Udov. He'd lived nearby. Sometimes he brought pears with dark red flesh over, They'd tasted of melancholy autumns and somber winters, and held the magic of nostalgia in them. Gwen could never eat them. 
Creel wants you. The arrow in his shoulder meant they didn't particularly care what condition he was in. He ached to yank it out and start healing. It had gone directly through him, unbalanced his body. It sent lancing pain down his side. He knew then, Creel would never stop. She would hunt him, torture him, do whatever she wished now that her center was no longer appearance. She would want vengeance for the house arrest. She would blame it all on him. He turned and scanned his environment. He couldn't teleport, not quickly enough to avoid another arrow through the heart. He'd need to get far enough away to buy himself a few seconds. I wouldn't, if I were you, Yudov shouted. His bow and arrow were two kilometers away. He looked around again. The stern one took several steps forward. We will kill you, he called. Light pulsed so hard behind his eyes that his hands clenched into fists, and he stumbled, bowing over the pain in his head. The headaches that he'd started getting had never properly gone away, and every now and then they became a sharp flash of excruciating pain, turning everything to a blaze of white. When he came back to himself, they were closer, talking to each other, the soft, muted voices of two soldiers who thought the arrow in his shoulder had disarmed him. He exhaled so hard that it was a pained sound. It felt as though the light was soldering his veins to the underside of his skin, crackling through. He blinked blurrily at his own arms, making sure they weren't blistering. He could hardly tell. The arrow in his shoulder was a welling throb, and he knew then that it had done damage somehow, perhaps sheared a nerve, pierced cartilage. He grunted softly, staggered backwards. Ever thought you'd see the day where it'd be this easy? It was the one who wasn't Yudov. Gwen didn't hear the reply. He felt as though a great white serpent was coiling up through his spine, looking for a way out of his body. He felt like he had when he was six, and he'd only wanted to defend himself from his father's wrath. A wheeze of an inhale, and then an even heavier exhale, and his uninjured arm was raising. He stared at it, blinking tears out of his eyes hurriedly, trying to concentrate. At once, the coil of light inside of him struck. A great, ominous force thundered through him. It arced through his arm, tearing a short, sharp shout from the back of his throat, then shot out of his palm into the chest of one of the soldiers. It blazed so brightly that Gwen was blinded by it, even though it was the most focused it had ever been. Not a chaotic ball, but a directed line of the stuff, burning through his arm. It happened too quickly to be controlled. Instead of being reduced to ash, the fae collapsed like a ragdoll, the life burned out of him as the light retracted into Gwen's body, his chest a blackened mess. Gwen stared, dazed, as the light pooled in his belly. There was a strange, heavy feeling inside of him, and he turned his mind inwards briefly, even as he watched Yudov, to try and feel out what it was. It wasn't just centered in his belly, but his entire body. His eyes widened. He felt sated. He realized he'd never felt anything like it before. He straightened despite the pain in his shoulder and blinked at the world around him. He thought he could feel the magic that made him, all of it satisfied, the light a lazy, predatorial whisper inside of him now, directing his eyes toward Yudov. Gwen swallowed, saliva flooding his mouth, not because he was truly hungry anymore, but because he could feed anyway. He hadn't known it could be like that. He'd killed with his light, yes, but never had he taken whatever he'd taken back into his body like that. It had never suffused his cells, his marrow, down to the tips of his toes. Yudov's eyes were wide and horrified, and Gwen blinked slowly, licked his lips. He looked at his own blistered palm, and then raised it again, feeling how easy it could be now. 
It wasn't like before. It didn't feel nearly so uncontrollable. It was a giant beast inside of him, reaching out a lazy paw. He flexed his fingers. Yudov turned and fled. Gwen, shoulder hurting badly, forced himself to follow. He could hardly think, letting the hunger take him over. He couldn't afford for Yudov to live and report back to Griel. In the back of his mind, a vague nausea at what he'd just done. He pushed that aside as best as he could. Yudov was getting away from him. He had the benefit of being fleet and having a higher status, and Gwen, who had always been fast, was injured. Every footfall unleashed a ball of throbbing, swooping pain inside of him. He tried changing his gait, even shifted to the very balls of his feet to make his steps lighter. It didn't help. The light pushed hard inside of him, and he tried to control it, tried to push it back, but he didn't have the mental fortitude. Even redolent and full with whatever energy he'd pulled back into himself, it struck fast. One moment his hand was up and shaking, the next the light had lashed out and pummeled into Yudov from behind, throwing him meters across the fungus-filled woods. He didn't even have enough time to scream. He was dead as soon as the light hit him. The bright, white arc of it coiled back into Gwen so quickly that he fell to his knees, blinked stars away from his eyes. He had no words to describe how he felt. He'd never done anything like that before in his life. Whatever bloodlust had awoken in him was slaked, and he rested his blistered, bleeding palm into leaf litter and dried moss as he gasped through the giant fullness inside of him. The light withdrew naturally, growing dormant somewhere in his gut. A few seconds later, he turned and threw up bile, the force of what he'd done overtaking his mind. He'd just fed on the death of Tufay, and not in some strange, abstract way. He fed on death, and not the death of humans or animals or plants, but the death of his kin. He might not actively cannibalize the flesh of them, but he ate his own kind. By the gods, Gwen moaned, spitting out acid and heaving out a dry sob as his shoulder flared with agony. It took him several minutes to collect himself, but he forced himself upright and over to Yudov's body, trying not to look at the black mark on his back, but finding himself unable to rip his gaze away. He ghosted hurt fingers over it, then bit his lower lip and quickly started rummaging through Yudov's pockets, stripping him of his boots, his pants, his shirt, the arm guard and other items he had attached to his hands to help protect them when shooting his bow and arrow. He only had one arm free, and his strength was waning, so he cached the clothing and the bow and arrow, burying it and covering it with the moldy odor of forest litter from a dying forest. He found a small blue bauble which he suspected was the charm they were using to track him. He cracked it in his palm, the glass turned clear. At least the tracker was dead, but the spell likely wasn't. He was shaking too hard when he found the other Fay's body, and a swoop of dizziness sent him down to his forehead when he slipped his hand into the man's pocket. He gasped spores into his lungs, and the paroxysm of coughing that followed was so violent that he had to grit his teeth on screams of pain. The pocket knife he found would come in handy. He needed a knife. He tried not to think about the other pocket knife he'd been gifted, even though it was his own, and then lost only a short time later. Another see the artifact. Albion would never know its significance. He was hardly thinking when he reached up and ripped the arrow from his shoulder, only hoping that once the foreign body was gone, he'd heal. And as blood poured down his arm and torso and trickled into the body of the dead fae he bowed over, his vision swimming, he realized that if anyone were to come after him now, he'd be easy to kill, 
because he was going to pass out. When he woke, it was dark. He had no idea how much time had passed. He pressed fingers into his shoulder, expecting it to have at least knitted over, and froze when his hand squelched into a mess of clots, dried blood, and a thick ooze that stuck to his fingers. His breathing was shaky. His body felt warm. He'd forgotten. He didn't have his court healing capacity anymore, and certainly not the healing capacity of kingship. He lay on the cold body of the fae beneath him and stared up, trying to gather his thoughts together. They were sluggish, uncooperative. He had to get away. He couldn't stay here, not where he'd been discovered. He wasn't sure where he could go anymore. He'd been aiming for places that seemed poorly inhabited, or even unlucky, but it wasn't working. He couldn't go to the unseelie court. He was injured. He was healing like an underfay. When he took his fingers away from his wound, he resisted the urge to be ill again. He still, thankfully, felt well-fed, and at least that would make him as clear-headed as possible. His clothing was a mess, caked to his body with blood. He forced himself to his feet, tried to sniff through a blocked nose, and then walked as quickly as possible to the cache, picking up Yudov's clothing. They both had a similar build, though he suspected the shirt wouldn't be broad enough at the shoulders. He likely couldn't manage sleeves anyway. He left the bow and arrow behind. The next time he was well enough to draw one again, he'd be well enough to teleport back and grab it. He felt, of all things, lonely. His thoughts strayed to August, and he squeezed his eyes shut, bowed his head. He tried not to think about August, but his mind insisted on shoving him to the forefront, and he took several deep, slow breaths. Everything hurt more when he thought of August. He was a mess of feelings. The hope that August was all right and taking care of himself. A terrible, heavy melancholy that everything was over, that what he'd had was possibly the best he could ever aspire to have. At least August was still alive, or that's what he told himself. He had to believe that was true. Oh, Gwen breathed, his eyes flying open. The blighted land. You could go to that. Gwen lifted his head and looked around. Could he? The land August had destroyed had a reputation for being terribly unlucky, and to his knowledge, no fae had attempted to recolonize it or bring it back to life again, even those fae who initially lived there and could trace their connection to the land back generations. Not only that, but the blighted sections of land were always centered around a lake or river, so there would be, he hoped, potable water for him to drink. The land itself wasn't as large as what he'd destroyed at the first Anvinwee estate, so he could always move beyond its bounds for food. And if he was attacked again, he now knew that he could feed. The horror of the act still hadn't fully reached him. He didn't want it to. He needed to eat and sate himself. He couldn't afford anything other than survival. But you'd never be anything other than a failure at dying. He hoped so. Years on the battlefield, of near misses and surviving torture and recovering from untenable wounds, he hoped that he could just hang on a bit longer. He didn't know what he was hanging on for anymore, only that he didn't want his death to be at the hands of Albion or his mother, or their people. He just wanted it to be on his own terms, whatever those terms might be. The teleportation to the blighted lake of Anuth, near the Unseelie Court, was so harrowing that he collapsed unconscious upon arriving. When he swam towards consciousness, 
he became aware of a heat flowing through him, opened his eyes, and stared up at the cold sun. His shoulder felt three times larger than it was, and he reached over tentatively. He could feel heat radiating from it. A dull horror infused him. Infection. He could be killed by infection now. Was that what he had? He wasn't sure. He'd never had it before. But he'd seen it. He touched the skin at his shoulder and cried out softly, flinching away from his own touch and then keening under his breath at the pain that radiated through his joint, down into his hand, across his spine, up into the back of his head. It frightened him. He dealt with worse pain, but he always knew he would survive it in the past. This was different. The pain felt sickened, twisted. His eyes roved, and he looked at nothing in particular as he reached back and touched the skin around the wound again. It felt stretched too tight, about to burst. It was hot. That was infection, wasn't it? The pain was unlike anything he'd ever felt before, and he knew a diversity of pain. It wasn't the worst he'd ever felt, but there was an agonizing wrongness about it, as though his entire body was revolting against the wound in his shoulder. It didn't feel like it had knitted together at all. He should have cleaned the wound. He shouldn't have ripped the arrow out so abruptly. He hadn't even tried to make the action smooth, not thinking that. He'd have to heal from ripping his own flesh further. What if there was fletching left behind? Bits of bird feather stuck in his flesh. He tried to stand to get down to the lake, but couldn't manage it. Instead, he crawled down on three limbs, holding his injured arm to his chest and laughing dryly when he realized the picture he must make. He eased himself into the water, grateful for the shallow bank at which he found himself. This must have been a very nice lake, once. He had no idea how Argus had destroyed the land, given that one of his innate abilities was to create life. He'd likely never get the chance to ask now. It took time to soak the shredded shirt away from his shoulder enough that he could take it off, and then it took concentration not to let darkness overtake his mind as he eased it off his body. He was bleeding again, thankfully not much, when he finally got the shirt off himself. His rib ached. The cold of the lake itself was starting to numb his shoulder into a dull throb, but it was turning the rest of his body too cold, and he could tell that there was something wrong with his body temperature. Not only that, but he was sweating. His forehead was still hot. He began to shiver. He wished he knew someone to go to. He'd met so many healers in his lifetime, and yet... Gwen looked at the wound in his shoulder, even though turning his neck to see it stretched the skin in such a way as to make choked sounds bubble up from his throat. What do I do? He stayed in the water for as long as he dared risk the cold temperature, rubbing away flaked blood, gritting his teeth through graying vision as he attempted to clean the wound itself, not knowing what he was doing. Rinsing it in water wouldn't be enough, he knew that much. The arrow had gone through his shoulder. He could have infection in the bone. That happened. People died from it. Even Ecturial and Capital Fay could die from it. Fuck. Gwen breathed. Fuck. In the end, he staggered back up to the bank and, shivering, realized he would have to make a fire. His body wasn't even attempting to regulate its temperature anymore, and by turns he felt chilled and then so hot he poured sweat. Realizing he needed to make a fire, and actually making one, were two different things. The initial thought was easy. But he couldn't rub sticks together, he didn't have any flint, and he had no coals or even matches from the human world. Then, at the end of his wits, having gathered wood and tender and extra sticks that he'd piled nearby, 
he ended up bowing over the wood itself and clasping his good hand to his chest, shaking so hard his teeth were chattering. He'd never really had to think about his mortality before. Not as some fragile thing that could sneak upon him, death visiting as casually as a hand upon the shoulder. It had always been something he'd needed to fight to even be close to. Even when he'd attempted suicide, he'd needed to be thorough. Something as simple as blood loss wouldn't do it, not as court fay. And now, here, unable to even make a fire, he was struck by how comical it all was. When he wanted death, it never came for him. And when he finally started fighting for himself again, it came and pressed its face to his, breathed cloyingly into his mouth. He groaned at a wave of pain triggered by shivering that he couldn't help. The tremors were rough with him, even his feet had cramped. He stared glassily at the cold wood piled in front of him, and looked up to the sky briefly, and then placed his good hand on the ground. Fay weren't really supposed to do what he was contemplating doing. But he'd already broken enough Fay laws, as a child, as an adult. He'd brought old Lore back into the world. Not just an eighthwick attached to his rib, but a soul bond. He'd already done the damage. What more could he do? And for only a fire. He lifted his hand and placed it flat against his chest, listening to his uneven breathing. He tried to clear his thoughts, could barely manage. Ancient gods of fire, from the upper and underworlds both. I don't know if you can hear me, or if you would even visit lands such as this, but please accept my offering of fealty, and know that I will repay you when I ask you to give life to this fire, so that I might warm myself by your light and live another night. It would have to do. He waited. He didn't even know if the ancient appeals worked anymore. Most Fey thought themselves as equal to the gods. Even the demigods like Albion thought as much. That was because the upper world and underworld deities wanted very little to do with the middle world Fey, and they rarely interacted. But, he knew from the tales, they watched sometimes. Was anyone watching him? He was classless and unseely and, though it pained him to acknowledge it, significant in the Fey world even if he was significant for the wrong reasons. The fire didn't light, and Gwen squeezed his eyes shut. Please. A sharp pop, and his eyes opened slower than he would have liked, to see what looked like a young man of about nineteen crouching opposite him, as the fire slowly crackled and smoked to life. He had a rough look about him, wild yellow eyes, small teeth and a small and sharp smile, ears that were furred red and tufted with black at the ends, to match ringlets of black hair that fell only to his ears. He wore the bright furs of animals Gwen had never seen before, and there were small ridges of black and red bone growing from his forearms, along cheekbones. He knew he was in the presence of a god, because a deep welling of dread suffused him. He swallowed in terror before the being. There, the god said, grinning at the fire. He thrust his hand directly into the newborn flames and shifted the wood around directly. Gwen smelled no burning flesh, saw no increased smoke, and when the deity took his hand away and shook the flames off himself, they fell like living creatures, leaving his skin unmarred. There, that will do. Look now, I've just saved your life. No, Gwen said, eyes widening. He wanted no life debt to a god. Uh, yes, the god grinned. By the way, I'm Kabiri. You're the one with a weird lineage, aren't you? Gwen tried to blink away his headache, but couldn't. Something about the being in front of him was throwing off his thoughts. He was dazed, 
He felt threatened. His light crackled inside of him. You're not Kabiri, Gwen said, recalling his own studies. They're a group. Then I'm Kabiri and one of the Kabiri. You're fussy for someone about to die. Not about to die, Gwen said. Just needed warmth. To recover. No life debt. Oh yes, a life debt. Kabiri crossed his legs and folded his arms across his knees. Absolutely a life debt. He looked around, shrugged. World's already screwed enough, though, isn't it? Might as well get us involved. By the way, there are some underworld creatures down there who are very unhappy with you about that soul bond. Whoo! You'd best never go down there. Probably ever. Shame you're going to have to one day. You're going to have to cauterize that wound of yours if you actually want to live. If I sleep, it will heal, Gwen said. Something passed over Kabiri's face then that could have been pity. No, little thing. If you sleep, you will die. Your body will burn itself up. Get it? Trying to fight the infection. Throw that knife in your pocket into the flames. I'll make it hot enough. I could even do it for you, if you like. Kabiri. They were the children of Hephaestus and an underworld cult of gods. He winced. I can't trust you. He raised his hand, reached for his light. He wasn't going to do anything with it. He just wanted it close. But Kabiri, or whoever he was, raised his eyebrows, amused. He made the tiniest gesture with his hand, and Gwen convulsed around himself, collapsed to his side, as the light was shoved back down inside of him, far further than he'd ever been able to push it himself. He choked, made strangled noises, and Kabiri got up and walked around the fire towards him. This, Kabiri said, casually kicking him in the shoulder. Gwen screamed as Kabiri kept talking. He didn't catch any of it. He tumbled in darkness, sunk into the black, scared for a moment that he was falling into the underworld. There was blackness around him. He swam out of it. He reminded himself that he'd done this before. Had he been tortured? He couldn't recall. He groaned in frustration when he saw Kabiri's face looming over him. His breath smelled like ashes. You're dying, Kabiri said, looking entirely nonplussed. The fire beside them was so hot that Gwen felt as though he was roasting. You're a liar, Gwen said. An underworld god. You can't be trusted. Kabiri gave a delighted laugh. <laughs> You're unseely. We're practically family. You're also a liar and can't be trusted. But you don't know that, do you? I mean, you sort of do, but not really. You'll owe me a life debt. And you're not going to like this. I'm leaving it open-ended. I won't name my terms until later. Much later. Gwen remembered abruptly the origami, old lore animals, shook his head weakly. Then die, for all I care. You asked for me. You promised me fealty. I was hoping for an upper-world god. Ha, because they're so much better, Kabiri snorted. Did you forget your alignment for a second? You come from the dirt and the shadows like the rest of us, no matter that light that lives inside of you. That's not light, that's the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, near-death experience. You've had enough, you should know. Never seen it, Gwen gasped. Color me surprised, Kabiri said quietly. Gwen felt a hand on his forehead. 
heard the sound of something rummaging around nearby in the fire. I will heal, Gwen said, but his voice was thready, and he could feel his heart beating so hard that he could feel it through his entire body. You are not like the Okushka. You won't reincarnate when you go. You'll just be gone. You're only around three thousand, right? A baby. Besides, you can't die. You owe me. I gave you a fire, and you offered repayment not for your life, but for the simple fact of the fire. Two favors. Now. Implacable fingers dug into his good shoulder, and then he found himself straddled by an impossibly hot weight. He struggled, the fingers dug in harder. The hand was only small, but the deity was stronger than the fae. There were fae that also lived in the underworlds, the upper worlds, but those places weren't their domain. That was where the gods lived. They had abandoned the middle world to humans and fae. Any gods remaining on the middle world were demigods growing in strength, or dormant nature gods, living in the land and slumbering deep. This is going to feel like dying. Be a phoenix for me. Rise up and get over it. Gwen's body jackknifed when he realized what Kabiri was about to do, or it tried to. Kabiri's grip was relentless, and he watched in horror as Kabiri drew not the knife, but his own hand from the fire. It morphed before his view, turning into something crab-like, pincers lengthening until they resembled red-hot skewers growing directly out of his arm. I don't even need a fire for this, Kabiri muttered, but it's all part of the show, isn't it? Just like you fay with your alignments. Silly, really. Didn't always used to be that way. Not that it's any of my business. Will you stop squirming? One of the elongated skewers protruding from Kabiri's arm plunged into his shoulder, straight where the arrow had passed. Gwen heard a terrible noise, felt the flesh rip in his own throat from the force of it. He was slow in passing out. The pain reached a crescendo, then eclipsed it again. The last thing he remembered seeing was Kabiri turning back to him from where he'd been watching his shoulder. He rolled his eyes when he saw that Gwen was still awake. His lips moved, but Gwen couldn't make out the words. A hand on the forehead scalding the sweat on his flesh, and everything was black. You owe me, Kabiri said from across the fire, cross-legged as he had been before he'd straddled Gwen. The fire was still burning, but much lower now. Gwen could feel it, but not see it. His eyes were glued shut. His shoulder was a mess of pain. He couldn't feel his right hand at all. His head felt like it had a lance through it. Am I not dead? Not yet, but you had better rest. I'm not a healer. And you are very nearly dead. And you owe me. And if you don't pay me back in this life, I will find you in a land of the dead, and you won't like me when I'm Cadmalus. Trust me. Gwen tried to pick the gum out of his eyes that was sealing them shut, with a hand blistered from using his light. He forced his thoughts together. He'd asked for this. He didn't like the consequences, but he'd asked. And if it was the only thing that would save him, as Kabiri said then he would simply have to deal with that. Then tell me what I owe you, Gwen rasped. Oh no, <laughs> Kabiri laughed. It's an open-ended debt for when I have need. Whenever I like, whatever I want. You play with old lore and soul bonds and piss off our kind, I'm going to ask for whatever I want. I don't know what you can do for me yet, but I'm sure there'll be something. Who knows? Kabiri stood up and winked at him. Remember, there are some debts that follow you beyond death. I didn't ask for you, Gwen whispered, closing his eyes weakly. Yes, you did. Gwen felt the small god, so much older than the young man he appeared as, 
his very energy a sickness in Gwen's mind, kneel beside him. He felt soft, hot hands on his cheeks. They were tender. Yes, you asked for me. The eleventh hour. All of that. You know how this goes. Fate and etc. Gwen huffed out a laugh, and Kabiri joined him a moment later, a voice full-bodied and so warm and engaging that Gwen thought he might sink into it like a child, wrapped in flame. He leaned into the touch without thinking. Careful now, Kabiri said. He withdrew his hand slowly, fingers caressing his cheeks. Rest. A few days. You have them. You're fed, and if you let yourself, you will live. It's a choice now. An easy one. The fire will burn for a week. That's all I give you. After that, I'll come to collect at a time of my convenience, no matter what world you live in. I can go everywhere, my little, little thing. A brief caress at his forehead, and Gwen was reminded of August, and his breath hitched. Grimacy, he whispered. But he got no response, and when he managed to open his eyes, Kabiri was gone. The next two days passed in a blur of sleep and nightmares. At one point, the nightmares were so bad that he woke unleashing his light. He heard sounds, shouts of horror that were abruptly cut off, but he felt weak as a newborn and couldn't do much more than shift his body on the ground, unprotected as it was, by a still-burning fire. He slept deeply after that. He woke up to starlight. He murmured a name in his throat, but his mouth was so dry that it was nothing more than a breath of air. He was cool, his skin felt clammy, but he didn't think he was sweating anymore, even though the fire was quite warm. He was dehydrated and needed water, but there was a lake nearby. He could smell it. He turned his head to look at it, and then mouthed the name again. A heavy weight pressed on his chest when he realized whose name it was, and he closed his eyes, unable to bear it for several minutes. The blighted land he'd chosen was so close to the unseated court he could practically walk there, a way of being close without hurting anyone. Get up, Gwen whispered to himself. He rolled to his good side, tried to brace himself for the pain, but couldn't. It affected too much of his body at once. And half kneeling, half lying on his good side, he started to wheeze out a laugh. This isn't nearly as bad as Tigmalon. That was two weeks. This is one wound. Get up. You need water. He forced himself up onto his knees and looked around. The fire was still going. He blinked at it, dazed and then dismayed. He really had made himself a significant debt with an underworld god. That would come back to haunt him one day. It seemed he was destined to ravel himself up in traps and snares, even when he was out of the steely court. Beyond that, he saw three bodies lying limply nearby. They'd been dead for a few days, perhaps. Each bore the char marks of his light and then Gwen realized his good hand was freshly blistered. The nightmare. It hadn't been a nightmare. He was still being tracked. He swallowed and looked around again, but the land was empty, and he couldn't see anyone. That was why he felt fed still, he supposed. His appetite had been satisfied without even knowing it, but he still needed water. Making his way down to the lake was a chore, and he was shaking badly when he reached the shallow bank. The water tasted good in his trembling hand. It was clean at least, if a little stagnant. The lake must have been fed by a well of some sort. It would have been a lovely place when it was filled with plants and surrounded by an ecosystem. There were lovely rise and falls in the land around him, 
but flat places for basking near the lake if necessary. Gwen wondered who used to live here. He wasn't familiar with the place, or he didn't think he was. After drinking, the lake never settled enough in the light breeze to show him what his shoulder looked like. He pressed his fingers to the front of it, only lightly touching, and felt the crust of dried blood and who knew what else. It was painful, and he knew from shifting his body weight, the inevitable shifts of the joint, that it wasn't healing properly. It felt wrong. It felt far worse than any arrow wound he'd had at court status or higher. It was as though something with claws had dug in and scrambled up the nerves and bone. And he knew it wasn't true, it still essentially looked like his shoulder. But he'd had no concept that injuries could be so bad for Underfay. He didn't know it would be like this. His good hand clenched when he suddenly remembered thrusting an arrow into August's shoulder when he'd hunted him. August had been Underfay, struggling with fear. At the time, Gwen had felt nothing but bloodlust and victory and the joy of the hunt, until August had distracted him with memories from the past. Now his head bowed by the lake, and he frowned, wishing he could undo some of his actions. He stayed until he started to get cold, made his way back to the fire, feeling a little stronger. He sat cross-legged, as Kabiri had, looked up at the stars. It took him minutes to stretch his neck enough to manage it, but he needed to keep the muscles around his shoulder as limber as possible. He still couldn't feel his right hand properly. He hoped that it would come back in time. He had some feeling in his thumb, and he could twitch it. His forearm was strong enough that he could hold it to his chest and take some of the strain off his shoulder. That was something. Later, he looked through the clothing covering the fey bodies for supplies. They were all wearing Creole's colors. She wasn't ashamed of announcing that she was after him. Albion had said she was under house arrest, but she obviously either still had access to her soldiers or she had given them very clear instructions. Why was it Herman and not Albion's military? Why would Creel be hunting him in secret? She wants to make your life miserable, that's why. You see, the court would never sanction the level of torture she wants to commit. Gwen sighed. One of the soldiers was wearing a pack, and he found dried rations in there, fruit and jerky, that he started eating immediately, even though it hurt his jaw to work at the tough food. There was a larger knife, a filleting knife for fish, bandages, some rope and twine, fire-making stones, a mug and a bowl carved out of wood, a vial of herbs that lathered like soap or shampoo, a comb, a razor, the clothing itself. He found another small blue ball, which he shattered. There was no tent, and no accompanying materials for a tent, like a small axe or hammer, no first aid kit. These soldiers were court status, or higher. They didn't need such things. He didn't feel any compunction stripping the bodies of their supplies. He'd had to do it enough times in the field, looking for items that had been stolen, maps and scrolls, or even just curiosity when he'd been ruined with bloodlust. He looked at everything he'd acquired, and then looked at the palm of his hand. Knowing he'd used his light so absently set a pit of horror yawning inside of himself, because he could still feel its potential, how huge it could be. But even so, he'd used it several times now to kill Faye, and each time it hadn't been a giant ball set on consuming the world, but a very specific type of light that always came back to him. He needed to start learning how to use it. He had nothing left to lose, and he was close enough to death anyway. Besides, as Underfay, perhaps this might be the only chance he'd have to get the light mostly under his control. I don't want this, he whispered. But when had that ever mattered? Over time, he became stronger. He practiced first walking around the circumference of the lake itself, 
and then slowly started increasing the range of motion in his shoulder. It was hard, and he was often frustrated with himself, with his weak, fragile body. Sometimes so frustrated he would lash out at himself with nails, scratching furrows of anger into his own skin. But he persisted, and soon he almost had complete range of motion back. The feeling still hadn't quite returned to his two outermost fingers, and he massaged them and the forearm often, because that had helped return the feeling to the rest of his hand. He forced himself to return to exercises that employed his body weight, push-ups, sit-ups, movements that maintained the strength that he had left. He'd lost musculature, and he could feel how much fitness he'd lost. And with no sword to practice, he could only step through his drills without a weapon conditioning his arms. He hated how it felt, and it often reminded him that Albion had possession of his armor, his sword. He'd fought for both. They were his. It didn't matter what Albion said. He'd visited the Glacera. He'd given him his own blood for them. Practicing with the light took longer, because even though he knew he needed to do it, he found it difficult to overcome the fear that quaked through him whenever he started to raise his hands to the dead trees nearby and use them for target practice. The first time he did use his light knowingly, to see what would happen, he ended up sick and bawled on his side for hours. He tried to pull himself together several times, but he couldn't. His rib ached. The whole world felt wrong. It was never easy. But it got easier. The light was easier to control, but he suspected that had more to do with having fed than being underfay. He could still feel how endless it was inside of him. August had called it melodrama, but Gwen was sure it could wrap itself around the world if it really wanted to. It felt separate to him, something he housed. Weeks passed, and Gwen made a small life for himself. It wasn't safe, or entirely peaceful, or even very satisfying. It wasn't like living in the middle of thick and healthy forests, on beautiful, idyllic land, stalking fit animals for food. He lived hand to mouth. Once he even caught himself hoping that Creel would send more soldiers his way, because he was so hungry. He'd spent the day punishing himself with exercise at the thought, which was useless, he knew. It only made him hungrier. Many unseedy fay ate other fay, but that didn't mean he had to like it. More soldiers came a week later. Gwen sensed them before they saw him, having learned the lay of the land and knowing what noises didn't belong. He'd hidden behind a copse of dead, leaning trees, and then taken them all out with several bolts of light. The first had been the hardest to control, and he was gasping what the force needed to make it behave even as he continued. But he'd fed, and he knew it would sustain him for a little longer. After that, he would have to start hunting. He stripped all of the bodies of their supplies and clothing, and dragged them to the edge of the land, digging graves for all of them so that they might be returned to the earth. The digging was excruciating. He had no shovel, was using a plate he'd found, but he pushed through it. That evening, his shoulder went into spasm and cramped for half the evening, and when twilight found him, he was covered in sweat and insensate, his good hand gripping his bad shoulder hard, moaning softly. He could withstand pain in the short term, but he had no way of understanding how to deal with injuries like this. Even the very worst things that had happened to him, he had always been completely healed within a few weeks. His fever came back, and he was scared he might die again. But after a couple of days, it broke once more, and after that his shoulder seemed weak, but easier to move. It shocked him that he didn't really want to die. Or that he did, but he didn't want to go like this, as some creature living on blighted land. When he really thought about it, and he hardly ever did, he realized a part of him didn't want to go until he'd seen August again.
He tried to forget about him. He knew it was for the best. But August was just as annoying in his thoughts as he could be in reality, and he persisted. It seemed like he made odd comments here and there. Sometimes Gwen would find himself reluctant to use his light, and he'd remember hands over his eyes, calming him. More often he remembered August rolling his eyes, shaking his head in disdain, and Gwen would take a deep breath and force himself to use his light anyway. The nights that he was too spent to force himself to step through drills or exercise, the nights where he knew he needed sleep and was afraid to sleep, they were the hardest. He had grown to dislike gagging himself fiercely and put off sleeping as much as his underfed body would allow him. It was one evening, he wasn't sure what day he lost track, that he stared up at the constellations and his good hand rested over his torso. He had a shirt on now. One of the soldiers had been brought enough through the shoulders, and he had enough range of motion that he could manage it. He drummed patterns into his own skin, mentally recited the names of the constellations, going through all the different names they had depending on the race and the culture of Fae that looked upon them. He knew many languages. It was good to practice. His eyes were wet, leaking. He'd been hounded by a relentless heaviness all day. It had struck like a hammer into his heart, left him wounded. He still didn't know exactly what it was, only that it was connected to August, that he missed him. He thought about how horrified August was that Gwen didn't touch himself more often, with gentleness or care. You are capable of so much pleasure. It is not only that you are barely touched and therefore starved for it, but also that you are simply sensitive. It is a crime that you don't explore yourself. Gwen breathed in sharply through his nose, closed his eyes, and trailed his hand down until it was resting on his upper thigh. His brow furrowed. He missed August, and perhaps, if he did this... But his hand and arm tensed, and he opened his eyes in frustration and stared up at the blurred stars, shaking his head. He just couldn't. Perhaps if he was filled with lust and had a quick, mindless minute to distract himself. But he couldn't touch himself the way August had touched him. His hand moved back up to rest on his ribs, and he dug his fingers in slightly. There were things he wanted to be able to do that he didn't know if he'd ever be able to do. It was just the way things were. It was a miracle he was even able to use, let alone practice using, his light. But exploring himself the way August wanted him to? He needed compulsions. He needed... August, Gwen whispered. I hope you're well. Once he started, he couldn't stop, and he spent the rest of the evening sending out small sentences into the bleak world around him. He felt closer to August somehow, living on the land that had been marked so clearly by him, even if it was marked with such destruction. I must apologize, I think, for the soul bond. I knew you didn't want to do it. I knew you wouldn't want to. It was likely the wrong thing to do. I've never been very good at the right thing. Creel used to say that. Well, I suppose you don't want to hear that. He closed his eyes and turned his head to the side, feeling the beat of his heart inside his chest. How did you do it for three thousand years without more scars? Even your shoulder didn't end up scarring. Mine is a mess, and my arm where I've used the light, even that is not the same now. Eventually he was left with simple statements that hurt, but he couldn't help but say them. I miss you. And then with a twinge. I hope you don't think on me with contempt. A name that echoed in his head countless times every day.
Vargas? He laughed quietly because he was becoming foolish now. Sweetness. Gwen took a deep breath and fisted his hand over his sternum. Anam Kara. Words he didn't think he'd ever get to use, and he never thought, not ever, that he would have cause to use them for an unseely, predatory water horse like the Ak Ushka. Even when he was a child, he used to be filled with fear reading fey tales about his other incarnations by candlelight, turning pages hunched over a straight-back chair, eyes wide at the Akushka's exploits. Gwen offered a shy, nervous smile out into the world. He felt the beating of his own heart and pretended it was the slower thump of August. He couldn't remember ever allowing himself to indulge like this, and even though it hurt, hurt terribly, he couldn't help himself. It gave him something, somehow, to think of August like this. My dear, dear heart. After that, he couldn't think of anything else to say. He was, geographically at least, so close to August. But the reality was that he didn't think he'd see him again. It was hard to love someone, knowing they likely hated you. Ash had said that August didn't want to have anything to do with him. Gwen would respect that. But it was hard. <laughs>